0: Awesome. thanks you, Gary. Um, along that vein, just so you know, about a year from now, we are sending a team to Guatemala. Yes. Gary <laughs> had a whole year to plan for this, one. but information will be coming out on that soon. And also in October, we're going to do a bit of an event. and We'll have we'll start promoting that in September with a 5K run around the track in town to raise some money for the new children's home that they do something in Guatemala. So. Tuned in, and like I say, these are opportunities for mission. But don't don't see mission as what we do far away from here. Mission is what we do every single day of our life, wherever we find that. Uh, let's just pray. before we Now we're thankful for this day that we can come together. We're thankful for the fact that you are at work all over the world. That we're uh, not just one little church meeting together to talk about things we believe, but that you have been all throughout history moving in the lives of people, in our hearts, uh, and, and now all around the world, you are working so we ask today, as we open the word and, and read from Philippians, that you would speak to us, and you would help us to understand what it is that you're calling us to, how it is that we live in a relationship with you, and how we are to live on mission in the world around us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're back in the book of Philippians. Uh, a little context reminder, Philippi was a difficult place to be a Christian. I said it was kind of a the patriotic center of Rome. A lot of retired military lived there. And the, the, the thing that Romans did was they would say once a year, they would go into the temple, they would take a pinch of incense, they would throw it on the incense burner, and they would they would require you to say, Caesar is Lord. And Christians said, No, Jesus is Lord. And so it made it a challenge to live out. That different understanding of reality in Philippi. And Paul is writing from prison. He anchors the letter that he writes today (laughs) in this stem or Paul we talked about last week in verses five to eleven of chapter two, talking about how we are to live in a difficult situation as we follow Jesus. And and that that Poem or him talks about the example of Jesus that we are to emulate, that we are to follow. How he surrendered his rights. Now, somebody give up to the aperture stuff you can raise a real good poem. I talked about how we are to surrender our rights. And often in North American culture we fight for our rights. And this person said, Well, what about situations where it's dangerous, what if there's an abusive situation or a situation where a child a child needs protection? Obviously, let me just be really clear, in those situations, the right, we do, what Jesus would do in those situations is stand up and protect, right? Surrender your rights doesn't mean you stay in an abusive situation, it doesn't mean that, that you let someone suffer or be hurt, so just so you're clear on that, but Jesus, had this right to, he was equal with God. I, know I, I didn't get on the chair, but the chair's here this week, right? We start on the chair and we'll talk about how God came down, 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 to servanthood and humility and obedience and sacrifice. And how because God had done that for us, we could lead the results of our following his example to him. And that's where you pick up the text today. And see, Paul is, is kind of gripping on this idea of following the example of Jesus. Uh, and, and that's why I call the sermon examples of our example, and he gives it to those both good and bad examples. We'll start in chapter two, verse nineteen, and read down to chapter three, verse fourteen. Two nineteen says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who takes a genuine interest in your welfare. For everyone looks out for his own interests not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son of his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to the save him as soon as I see how he go with me. And I'm confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. But I think it's necessary to send back to me, Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you he heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him, so that when you see him again, you may be glad, and I may have less anxiety. Welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honor men like him, because he almost died for the work of Christ, risking his life to make up for the help you he could not give me. And finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. It's no so trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it's a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh, for it is we who are the circumcision. We who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, the Hebrew of Hebrews,
1: in regard to the
0: law of Pharisee, as for zeal persecuting the church, as for legalness righteousness, faultless. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider lost for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss, compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I lost all things. I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his suffering, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to obtain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained all this, or I've already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that to which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do... Forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. So he starts, he's reminding us in this text of Philippians. Remember he started that first chapter. He said he calls them saints. He says that God will complete the work that he started in them. He, he's, he's promised that, that God, we can have confidence in what God is doing. And then he spent the last section of text saying, what God is doing in us is calling us to live out the way Jesus lives, to live like He did. in our text this week, he shares some examples of those who are and those who aren't doing that very thing. He starts with Timothy and his characteristic of care for others. Right? Timothy has been serving with Paul. He was in Philippi when this church was planted. He says, there is no one else, he, there's nobody else like to literally in Greek. He says, there is no one of equal soul. And the beautiful thing to say about somebody, there's nobody like him. He has a genuine interest in your welfare. Right? And remember that back from chapter 2 where it said, look not only to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. In verse 3 and 4. Do nothing out of self-ambition. Paul says, Timothy is one of those guys. He's an example of our example. He's doing it. And Paul's even sacrificing too. He says, Timothy's been like a son to me, and yet I'm hoping I can send him to you. I'm hoping once I find out what's going on with me, I can send him on to you for your benefit. And then he mentions Epaphroditus, which is a great name. I don't know why people don't name their kids Epaphroditus. <laughs> and his sacrifice itself. Epaphroditus had been sent to Paul from Philippi with the gift. Remember, the Philippians heard Paul was in prison in Rome. They sent Epaphroditus there. This letter comes out of that as a thank you for the gift that Epaphroditus brought. Uh, Most people think he was the way the letter itself got back to the church at Philippi. And in verse 25 of chapter 2, it says, I love this phrase, whom you sent to take care of my needs. That word, take care, is, the Greek word is liturgia, which is like literature, or litur- litur- liturgy, excuse me, not literature, liturgy. What he's actually saying is, Epaphras came and he served like a priest to me. He, he lifted me up to God and brought God to me. That's what he did. The same exact word is used in, 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 uh, in the later verse where he talks about serving is this is what Epaphras has been for me. And, and his trip has caused or resulted in some form of illness that almost killed him. And what's funny is Epaphras doesn't seem upset that he almost died. He seems upset that the people in Philippi have been worried about him because he was so sick. He didn't want them to worry. He cared that they were at peace. He, he risked his life to help. That's that word liturgy again. He, he served as a priest in that way in a way that you couldn't. And Paul says, honor this man who's living out the hymn that I just mentioned above, the example of Jesus. But then he moves in chapter three to a group called the Judaizers. Now in your outline, it's not Christine's fault, it's my fault, and it may be fixed up there. I misspelled that. I put it A-I, and it's supposed to be I-A. So you can fix that if you really care about those. I just say that because some of you will say, you know, you misspelled that word. And I want to put that to rest so we can move on. But the Judaizers were people who were trusting over substance. He starts with three, 3 verse 1 with his call to be joyful, which is interesting. He tells the free people to rejoice in the Lord. He's the one in prison, and he's telling the one's free to rejoice. He's able go the other way. Oh, hang in there. Rejoice in the Lord. Be tight. It'll be okay. But it's going the other way. And then he mentions those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. Now, these were people all throughout the Jewish world that that really were plaguing Paul and the new churches constantly, they were confused about the gospel, Judaizers. They felt like, yes, we want to have faith in Jesus, but we also need to keep all the laws. First, we have to become Jews. We have to be circumcised. We have to keep the laws written in the Jewish law and have faith when the faith doesn't work. And so... The Old Testament right of circumcision was a big deal for them. These Gentiles would come to be Christians, and they would say, unless you're circumcised, you're not a Christian. You, you can't do that. You can't just come and bypass that right of circumcision. They said it's necessary for salvation. Believe, they said, yes, trust, but you have to do this, or it doesn't actually work. Now, it's interesting, because in the Old Testament, even when it talks about circumcision in Deuteronomy 30, it realizes it's a sign of... Of something deeper. It says in Deuteronomy 36 The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all your heart, with all your soul, and live. See, Paul, Paul's reiterating that even though it's a call to follow the example of Jesus that is central to this matter, even that isn't just boiled down to a list of things that you should do. The Judaizers are saying, Oh, no, yeah, believe in Jesus, but you have to be circumcised, or it doesn't count. Paul says, that's that's the wrong example. That's not the way you want to fall. Because when we focus so much on the acts that we do, we miss the point of what's going on in faith in Jesus Christ. See, I'm not saying that that doing is wrong. I'm just saying if we put doing first and then believe in Jesus... We've got, we've got the ordinary stuff. It's the belief and trust in Jesus that leads to the doing. The power source of our doing has to be deeper than just a ritual or a practice. Paul demonstrates this as we move on to look at the example of Paul himself. He goes on to, to turn the focus toward himself. And he explains what it is that actually helps people to change and follow the example of Jesus. What it is, he says, it's a knowing of Christ. There's a relational aspect to this transformation that is vital. He's pursuing knowing Jesus. And as he does that, his life has changed. The Judaizers are saying, Do these things and then you'll be okay for God. But Paul says that's not true. He says, We're the circumcision. We worship by the Spirit. We glory in Jesus. We put no confidence in the flesh. These things that they're saying you have to do, you cannot depend on those things to have a relationship with God. He says, you want to talk about confidence in the things that you do? Well, Paul has reasons. He has his reasons. He he, he says, there's there's, there's actually seven things that he lists in that text in verses 4 and 6. He was circumcised on the eighth day. He was Jewish. He was the tribe of Benjamin. He was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Now, those are four things that happened out of his control. They happened to him because of who he was born to. But then he goes three more, that he's chosen it. And he says, in regards to the law, I was a Pharisee. He was the most devoted of any Jew toward the law. Pharisees really believed that the way the Messiah was going to come back is if they kept the law. And to make sure they kept the law, they added laws to make sure they didn't break any he says, "In regards to zeal, I persecuted the church. And as far as legalistic righteousness goes, he says I was all, I did it all." He says, "You want to start comparing words?" He says, I, I, "I'm the top dog. You can't. You want you want Judaizers. You want to look at what you've done? Look at me." And he's you know remember last week we talked about Jesus going down. Well, here's Paul, right? He says, "You want to look at me? I was I was circumcised on the eighth day, and and I was of the people of Israel, and I was." Of the tribe of Benjamin, I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. In regard to the law, he said I was Pharisee. And as Brazil, I was persecuted in the church. And then if you want to really get legalistic righteousness, here's my chair. I wanted to do this all. <laughs> I was false. See, Paul's saying, all that stuff I did, do you, do you get the irony? Do you get the irony of Paul saying, follow the example of Jesus who came down, 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 down. They say, before I met Jesus, I worked my way up, 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 up. And I did it better than any of you. You know what? We can all find our reasons to be confident in what we've done. We can all look at other people, I don't do what they do. I would never act like that. I go to church, I read my Bible. I <laughs> was a kid growing up in the South. Christian boys had a statement that was righteousness to us. You know, I have to explain part of it because there, the word chew, there were there were major, major sins in the church of the southern United States. Smoking, drinking, and chewing tobacco. Those were the three major sins. Uh, I don't know where lust and greed and all that stuff fell out. But, Christian boys would always say, I don't, I don't smoke, drink, or chew, or go out with girls who do. And that was righteousness <laughs> for us, right? And, and you know, we, we all have our things that we use to elevate ourselves, that we put our confidence in. I work hard to provide for my family. I'm not a, a burden on society. We all find these reasons, the actions that we do that we can be confident in. Look at what God has blessed me with. Look at what look at how He's blessed. And that that becomes a reason for confidence. And that's what the Judaizers were doing. They were spiritualizing activities and actions as a way to elevate themselves in God's eyes. Paul says, if anybody can have confidence from that, it's me. But then he shares his perspective and his priority. First, his perspective in verse 7 of chapter 3. He says, whatever was to my profit. So these weren't bad things he was doing, except for persecuting the church. Whatever, whatever was to my profit, I now consider them lost for the sake of Christ. That, that word "loss" literally means a disadvantage. Something that actually does damage. And that's what he's saying. He's saying all those things I depended on for all those years, they were taking me farther and farther away from depending on Christ where he was. I was just puffing up my ego. They kept me from what was real. And verse 80 says, what's more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whose sake I have lost all things. Here we see both his perspective and his priority. He said, I see all these things I was doing to climb the spiritual ladder, to make God happy, to elevate myself. They really held me back because they focused me on me and took me further away from the God who descended to be with me where I was, broken. And now he says, my priority is not focusing on me and my righteous acts anymore. My priority is knowing Jesus, to know Him fully. It wasn't clear enough. He says at the end of verse eight, I considered them rubbish. Now that Greek word uh, is skubalon. It's a great word to say if you hit your thumb with a hammer. Skubalon. Uh, When I was a kid, I learned that word and (laughs) that became my. Sanctified square word of choice. If I stub my toe, I could say scoop a lot. It was very, it's got that smooth to it, you know? It just gives you a sense of relief. What it really means is not more well, rubbish qualifies, but if you literally want to know what it means, it means dumb. Human or animal excrement. So Paul says, all those things I did to climb the, the ladder, really, I, I count them all as dumb. Compared to knowing Jesus. How many you know what this is? Right? I know what this is? How <laughs> many you know what this is, right? You take your dog for a walk, and they uh, contribute to the carbon cycle, and you put your hand in there, and you reach down, you grab it, and you. Now, last week I held out a, a treat from Starbucks. <laughs> and I said, Who wants to, right? <laughs> what do you do with that bag when it's used? You don't take it home and keep it. You get rid of it as quickly as you can. Right? You're looking for when I'm on my walk with my dog and I have a bag. I'm looking to get, find a garbage can anywhere. If you've got your garbage can out in front of your house, I may help you out at some point. Right? We we don't save it. We get rid of it as fast as possible. And that's what Paul says. That's what my works are like. I, the more I hang on to those, the more I treasure those. The greater loss it is for me because I'm not needing Jesus to fulfill it, to fulfill my need. Paul makes a very visual example of all his efforts by calling them dumb. His priority is to, to know Christ Jesus, Messiah Jesus, his Lord. He wants to gain Christ. He says, All these things I count as loss, as a disadvantage so that I may gain Christ and know him and be found in him. Now, why is this so important for him to gain Christ and be found in him and to know him? Because what he's seeking is righteousness from a different source. Before we explain that, I want to clarify that term righteousness, because we only get about half of it. I think most of us, when we talk about righteousness in the church, we think of it as a status. A legal status before God. We were sinners, Christ died on the cross for us, we accept his forgiveness, we are on our file in heaven. It says, now because of Jesus, we are righteous. That's righteousness. And that's that's true, very true from Scripture. But it's only part of the meaning. If you if you follow that word righteousness through scripture, very often, in fact, the majority of the time, it's not so much talking about status as it is talking about a way of living, a just and pure and right way of life. Said that Joseph, Mary's husband, was a righteous man. It didn't mean he had a status. It meant he lived a certain way. And see, I think what we end up doing sometimes is thinking of righteousness just as what what's on our file in heaven, instead of realizing what God gives us is the ability to live A different way. But the problem is, Paul says, for so long I was trying to get it myself. I was trying to earn it myself. I was trying to be righteous. And what I realize now is that righteousness comes from a different source. Knowing Jesus not only declares me holy and righteous on my file, it also begins to change me and transform me to conform me to the image of Jesus so that I look like him. And the source of it is not my hard work. It's trust. It's, it's faith. It's believing that what God has said is true. He says in verse 9, it's not a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. Look at that verse 3.9. If you're not reading that, look at that. Let me on That I may gain Christ and be found in him Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, because of all the good things I've done. But that which is through faith, another word for that is trust in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God, and is by faith. Now, it's true, it's a gift. God sees us as righteous. We've been forgiven. But what he's also saying here is that God, through faith in Jesus, through this trust in believing that he will finish what he started, through this love that is bigger than we can even imagine, the one that meets us down at our Righteousness then becomes living in a way that reflects who Jesus is. And this change in living is not because we think we know what we're doing and we should do it. It comes because we realize that we don't know what's good and yet God loves us and there's something that happens in us that begins to change us. It's, it's because we go back to that trust that God will finish what he started in us, even when we fail. We don't have to spend our time making sure we're climbing the ladder. We just have to hang out with Jesus and realize that he loves us where we are. And as that happens, something in us changes. We are transformed. And there's a righteousness that comes through faith. There's a different way of living. So let's sum it up with what I'll call some advice for Christ Paul. Practical advice in this text. Knowing Jesus is the key to becoming like him. That's one of the things Paul's saying. And it takes time. It involves this process. But once again, God will finish what he started. So here's, here's three things. This is my advice to you from this text. You can take it or leave it. First one is this, seek righteousness by faith. Paul refers to things like this other places. In the letter to the Romans, he bookends it. He uses a different word for righteousness. He uses the word obedience, but it's the same idea. He begins Romans 1.5 by saying, through him. And for his name's sake, we receive grace and apostleship to call people from among the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. So when we're believing that God will do what he said he's going to do, that he loves us despite our brokenness, when we have faith and hold on to that trust, there's an obedience that comes out of it. And at the end of the book, he says the same thing again in Romans 16. Now to him who is able to establish you in accordance with my gospel, the message I proclaim about Jesus Christ in keeping with the revelation of the mystery hidden from long ages past, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the commandment of the God. So what? So that all the Gentiles might come to the obedience that comes from faith. And I've said this over and over, but we try to force obedience by guilt, by shame, by fear, by willpower. And the Bible teaches that obedience comes by. faith. Trusting that what God has said is true. All of a sudden, the picture is off. And you can respond out of love instead of out of obligation. How much easier is it to obey someone who loves you than someone that you're trying to make happy that doesn't love you? We want to obey the person that loves us. We want to do the things for them. That's why he says you've got to. It's that faith and trust in who God says he is that inspires obedience. And, righteousness. and when, when we seek this righteousness that comes from keeping the law, like Paul climbing the steps, you know what we do is we hide. Just like Adam and Eve ran and him in the garden. I don't think we hide from God, but we hide the truth from ourselves. Because the whole time Paul was, you know, in, in regard to all that, I was doing all the right stuff, Paul was still messed up. We all are. We all make mistakes, but we don't want to acknowledge that if we're depending on the law to make us righteous. So we hide from the truth. But when we can trust that God loves us by faith, that he will finish what he started in us, then we can be honest about who we are, about our brokenness, about our failures, because God's not surprised by them, and he's not going to walk away from us. He's going to work on those things. And that love and acceptance by God actually transforms the way we live. When we receive by faith the love of God, we desire evil less. That's what happens. In spiritual life. It seems counterintuitive. That when we try less to do the right thing and rest more in the love of God that we actually end up doing the right thing. And that's why of says it's the grace of God that teaches us to say no to ungodliness. That's why John says we love because he first loved us. You start looking for that in the Scripture you realize that what, what, what we've wrapped ourselves up in is trying to get everything right instead of trusting that God loves us when we get everything wrong. And all of a sudden that it's this huge motivation to live differently. Paul says this, right living comes by faith, by trust. <laughs> and because it's only it comes, we can be patient with the process. Look at verse 12 of chapter 3. Not that I have already obtained all this, but have already been made perfect. I haven't arrived, he says. Goes back to chapter 1, verse 6, being confident of this, that the one who began, and the work we will carry on the completion. Paul says... He's doing it to me too. I'm not there. I can be patient with the process. I can I can let my love grow and knowledge and of insight. Remember that from chapter one, saying that God's shaping me, and I can be patient with that process over time. How many of you, when your kids learn to walk and the first step they took and they fell down, your first thought was, "You stupid cluts." <laughs> Nobody does that. You laugh and you're. You actually love the kid more because they're trying and fell down, don't you? And so many times, I think the way we envision God is every single time we blow it, He's he's mad at us. When He says, "Look, I'm getting this done," just keep going, just keep going. I love you right where you are. So we do what we do. We we keep moving. And we rest in the, in the trust of the love of God for us, and that begins to change our behavior little by little. We're patient with the process. And then, how do we live that out? Well, Paul says, and I, this is one of my favorite things Paul ever says, because it's so funny. Do the one thing that is three things. Did you catch somebody said that? This one thing I do, and then he lists three things in a row. It's like Paul. Just one. It's, maybe it's one for him, but it's three for me. This one thing I do. First, he says, I forget what is behind. I literally neglect it. I care nothing about. Your past mistakes and failures are forgiven and gone. So stop wasting your time there. The grace of God is big enough for the mistakes that you have made. So stop dwelling And he says, and I strain toward what is ahead. Toward toward what God is making me to be. I, I've come to understand that word strain this week. In my athletic people like me, you know how athletic I am. I was running through the rotary trails and I tripped on a roof and went down on my shoulder and sprained my shoulder this week. And so it's not the best way to get out of running, but it is one way to get out of running. But so I I had limited mobility. I'm getting a little bit better after about a week, but I'm realizing that there's a point where I get to and I cannot reach any further without pain. And every day I'm trying to stretch that a little bit further. I'm straining toward actually being able to use my whole shoulder, which will be nice. But but, so Paul says, I'm forgetting what's behind and I'm straining toward this thing. that that God is making me to be. And he says, and then I press on, I I run towards what that Greek word means. I pursue, I chase. What is he chasing? Is he chasing heaven? I I mean, it's in there. He's called to the prize. He's called me heaven where in Christ Jesus. I think he tells us what the prize is back in verse 8. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for who sick of all things I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him. I, he says, what well, I'm straying, what well, I'm forgetting what's behind, I'm straying for what's ahead, and I'm running, chasing as hard as I can this gift that God has promised me that one day I will be in Christ. I will be like him. Because I'm trusting he loves me in my brokenness, I'm willing to pursue him with everything I've got. See, it. It's trusting in the grace of God that changes us. We've got to get that through our thick heads. And it's going to take some time. And believe me, we've all messed it up up to today. Paul says, forget about that. Forget about your mistakes. Now, you know, we also want other people to forget about our mistakes. That's not necessarily, you forget about your mistakes. Don't sit there stewing in them and leaning toward what God's calling you to the fact that he loves you, that he's given you grace and he's forgiven you, and that begins to transform you. And after, a, a, and chase after Jesus, that is what happens. You begin realizing, I can't believe he doesn't count that against me. I'm not go. I'm there he is. He loves me. And you begin to chase after him, and as you chase after him, you become more, you begin to reflect him more and more to the world around you. That is how the gospel changes us, day by day by day. God, we just thank you that you do come down to us and don't require that we come up to you, that we can be totally honest with our brokenness and our failure and our sin, and that your grace is big enough to not only cover it, but to erase it. Let the truth of that just sink into our hearts and our lives, and let that cultivate in us a love for you that changes and transforms our behavior to reflect you. I pray, God, too, that that grace that we've received from you, we would be able to share with others. That just that we've been loved, not because of what we did, but because of who you are, that we can love other people, not because of what they do, but because of the fact that you love them. I pray that that would flow through our hearts, that that would be the one thing that we do, that we can forget what's behind, that we can strain toward what's ahead, and that we could run, we can press on to take this beautiful gift that you have for us in making us whole and new. We look forward to the day when faith will be sighted. And it won't just be a hope anymore, but it'll be a realized hope. We just ask that, that you would continue to be patient with us
1: and work in our lives in ways
0: that would make us more like Jesus. Amen. Amen. That whole idea of walking by faith and not by sight is why what we do once a week here together is so important. I just want you to get that. Because the world every day will tell you it's not what Jesus has done for you. It's what you do. That's what gets you out. And and you're going to go out for the next six days. Everything from the internet to TV to your friends to the coffee shop is going to tell you that message. And we come back together to remember the truth. That's what we do when we worship. We remember the truth that what God has done for us is what really matters, and we can rest in that. And I, I, I don't know if you guys realize how important this group is. I, I, our church, together with the church at home, is vital that we walk together to remember this truth because the rest of the world is trying to take it out of your brain. They're trying to tell you the other story. So we come together, and I, I love what Paul says from the Philippians because it, it's the way I feel about you guys. So I'll see if I can use that out. Usually, if I say that, I can't. So that's why I <laughs> I thank my God every time I remember you in all my prayers for all of you. I always carry joy because of your partnership in the gospel, that truth, from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began to work in you and will carry on to completion until the day Jesus. We've got to remember that truth this week. Oh, amen.